Hello and welcome to the Evolution of Business podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Brady, and I'm here today with Sue Butler, who serves as as chairman of the board of directors and in a consultant role for Butler Till, the company she founded in 1998 with partner Tracy Till. Butler Till is a media and communications agency that delivers progressive approaches for reaching, engaging, and influencing consumers across the myriad of media channels available today. Butler Till is based in Rochester with offices in New York City and San Francisco. With over 130 employees, the firm is 100% employee-owned, a B Corp, and a certified women business enterprise. Butler Till has been recognized with many awards, including Ad Age's Best Place to Work in Marketing and Media, B Corp's Best for the World, and has appeared on the Inc. 5000 list six times since 2010. Individually, Sue was honored as a finalist in Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur Entrepreneur of the Year Award for New York Region in 2015. As a passionate advocate for employee ownership, Sue serves on the ESOP Association Board of Directors and on the Ownership Culture Committee. So that could be three or four podcast episodes in and of itself. <laughs> uh, but let's start anyways with, uh, with a little bit of your story and, and tell me about the founding of Butler Till and, and where that came from, what, that idea with, with you and Tracy. Okay. Um, it actually evolved out of a company called Butler Marketing and Media. I, I got out of college in the late 70s and I went right into advertising. So from the late 70s to the early 90s, I, I worked in advertising firms, I worked in media buying companies, and I sold media. I sold for WHEC TV, and I sold for a regional radio network. Um, in 1992, the opportunity presented itself for me to, to go out on my own, and I established Butler Marketing and Media, which was a, a small Uh, media buying service. It was me in my living room in Penfield. And uh, that was was really the beginning. And we operated, I mean, I I quickly outgrew my living room. And but, you know, we had like two or three employees, it was small. And we worked with a lot of regional and national advertisers uh, on um, mostly retail and consumer type of advertising campaigns. So did a lot of, you know, broadcast print, billboards, things like this. And remember, this is the early 90s. So internet, you know, was just wasn't really here yet. Um, so it was very traditional in terms of the types of media programs that we were developing for our clients and, and negotiating and placing for them. What happened, we, we were going along with, you know, 97 comes along, we're, you know, we're doing fine. And Tracy Till, who is someone that I had known for many years in the industry, was a peer, was the media director at Hutchins, Young and Rubicam at the time. And she contacted me one day because Hutchins had decided to make uh, their agency a Xerox-only agency, which I don't understand that, but it was good for me because uh, Tracy basically called me and she said, I'm looking for jobs for my people because she had about five or six media buyers and planners and and she said, I know you're doing well. And I said, you know, I don't, I, I don't have any roles for that, but what are you going to do? And she goes, I'm not really sure yet. So, you know, a few breakfasts, a few lunches, a little bit of persuasion on my part. And Tracy joined me in, in late 97, early 98. And by the middle of the year, we knew it was a, a good match. And we basically then incorporated as equal owners in Butler Till Media Services. So that's really, that's really how it began. And uh, it, it's been a wonderful journey ever since. Yeah, we were talking uh, that you're, although maybe not in the day to day, you're still you're still quite involved. Obviously, as chairman of the board, mm-hmm. and and it sounds like still involved as well. And kind of some of that enculturation process and in, in onboarding new employees and talking about a little bit about the founding. So 
I'm curious, you know, you've got the, you're an ESOP, you're, you're a B Corp, you're a, a great place to work, all these, all these different uh, awards. W- was that something that was intentional that, that you set out to create this different kind of culture at your company from the start? Or, or when, you, when you were getting started, um, was, that even, was that those sorts of things even on your radar? I think it wasn't so much that we thought about it in terms of let's establish a distinct culture. I think that Tracy and I, by the time we joined forces in 98, we both had been in the business for a while. We, um, you know, we had had successful careers and, and we were looking to do something special. We wanted to do great work for great clients. We wanted to be respected, obviously successful um, in, in all of the ways that, that we measure success. But we wanted to do it in a way that just met our own personal values and beliefs in terms of just being good people and having an environment that was very positive and supportive and and just being there for each other, being there for our employees, being there for our clients, um, giving back to our community. Um, I think we were both moms. I mean, we both had children. And, um, and I think we brought some of that maternal instinct to how we ran the company. And so I think the culture of Butler Till grew out of the personalities of Tracy and I. Um, we are ambitious. We are competitive. We, we have very high standards. We believe in, um, in being remarkable and being indispensable partners to our clients. But we also just believe in being good people and kind and caring and that it, it isn't all about business. It's about humans and, and how can we live, go through this world and, and do the things we need to do for our business, but also just help other people. So when you started, it was just the two of you, correct? It was three of us, three. actually. Okay. Mm-hmm. So from three to now over 130. Yeah. Uh, how how does that change and evolve? I mean, trying to trying to create that culture, it it can be really difficult. A lot of startups, you know, maybe they they have that certain feeling at the beginning yeah. where it's me and my friends working out of the garage, sort of a mentality, and then you really do need to professionalize that culture, and it needs to evolve and adapt. So. How how has that happened? Was that a was that a struggle? What were some of the what were some of the things that you went through in terms of trying to maintain that culture as you grew? It is hard. There's no question. You know, we we started with three, then we went to ten, then we went to twenty, then we went to fifty, and and the relationship that you can have as as an owner with the employees changes the more of them that there are, obviously. And, and then suddenly we have more services and more departments and, and all, all, all of that. So does it, um, it is challenging, but I think we just try to keep a very open, open door, which is kind of an overused term, but just, you know, kind of a very open door philosophy, a very um, caring philosophy for our people, believe very much one of our, our hallmarks, I think, and one of the reasons we've been so successful, including through some rougher economic times back around the, the Great Recession, is that we always tried very hard to stay at the leading edge of what was going on, which is not easy in a business as dynamic as ours. But, you know, we were investing in looking into to digital media when it was just in its nascent form and then social media. So, so just kind of making sure that we were always staying at the front of that and then giving our people the opportunity to be trained and educated and learn and bring that to to our clients and to the company as, as another service offering. So I think in, in many ways it was just we physically did do things that were very much geared towards that. Tracy and I used to host monthly um, family dinners 
and we would have them in my living room and or in my dining room at my home and there'd be like eight eight of us and we'd sit around and the rule was you couldn't talk about work so you just talked about you know what was going on with your family or you're going on vacation or and and things like that are, are very important and we've always done those and they've changed and evolved over the years and into different ways of doing that but interacting with your people on a personal level as well um, so now then becoming an ESOP, I think obviously just enhanced to that. I think most, most successful ESOPs that I know already started out as a very familial culture before they decided to become an ESOP. And that was certainly the case with us. But then when you actually do become an ESOP and when, when the, the employees are actually owning the company, then that adds a whole nother element of, uh, of that feeling of, of culture that is fabulous and it just makes it even better and stronger. So where did you get the, uh, did, did you have mentors or, or how did you, how did you get that ESOP kind of seed planted into your brain of, Oh, maybe this is, maybe this is a, a way forward for Butler Till. It was totally by happenstance as I, I, I like to say it was a probably about 2009 and I was starting to think about exit strategies. Um, I'm, I'm six years older than Tracy, and I knew I kind of had in my mind when I wanted to be able to exit the business. And I also knew being a service business, it, it, would, be, it would take time. And we're both planners by heart, so it wasn't. So I went into her and I said, look, I, I want to start thinking about this and, and ways that we can do this in the next maybe five or seven years. And um, I said, but I don't think, you know, I'm not saying you have to, you know, leave because you're, you know, you may wish to stay longer than I do. And, and it was so funny because Tracy said, when you leave, I leave, you know, I mean, that's just, that's the way it is. Um, so our original thought was certainly that we would end up doing a strategic sale. I mean, that's what everybody thinks, a bigger ad agency, um, somebody that doesn't have a strong media component in their agency and wants to bring us on another, you know, I mean, I figured we'd be bought up by a larger ad firm of some nature and our CFO happened to go to a business luncheon about this time and sat at a table with a bunch of people and started and heard the word ESOP. She didn't know what it was either. This woman, you know, she's an MBA, she's a CPA, she's very, very knowledgeable. She had never heard of it either. She came back, and I'll never forget this. She walked to my office and said, Sue, there's this thing called an ESOP. And if we're an ESOP, we don't have to pay taxes on our profits. She's a, she's a CFO. I mean, it was like all the bells and, and whistles were going off. So we're like, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's interesting. And that's how we first heard about it. And from there, we just started our due diligence. You know, we reached out and um, started talking to, you know, business professionals, lawyers, valuation firms, you know, companies that, that are experts in this. And it didn't take us long to realize that this was the route that we wanted to go. And we started to put things into practice in 10. I mean, we had to go through a feasibility study to make sure that we qualified. And then uh, we actually did our first transaction in 2011 when we sold 51% of the company to the trust, to the ESOP trust. And our original plan was that in probably five, actually, we took out a loan to do that. It was a seven-year loan. And we thought we would pay it off in five years. And business was so strong, I think partly because the ESOP was such a great addition to the company as well, we paid it off in three years. So our CFO said, you know, you can do the second tranche whenever you want. 
And we said, well, let's do it. So in 14, we sold the balance. And Tracy and I stayed on through the end of 14 as, C- as CEOs. But then in 15 is when we kind of left the day-to-day and entered the board and changed our role significantly. Wow. So f- for those that may not be familiar, can you just kind of explain the the setup for, for an, an ESOP, you know, in terms of um, how how employees get to get to be owners? Is there a, a vesting period and, and all those kind of the, the nitty gritty, at least at least from from your experience? Yeah, I'll try. It's very it's very complicated. And believe me, it took me a long time and a lot of reading <laughs> to kind of grasp it. And I still am, am not an expert on it. Um, but basically what happens is the company is valued. Um, and, the, and the selling shareholders agree to the value that has been established. And one thing about an ESOP is it can only pay fair market value. It cannot pay, like a strategic buyer might be able to pay a higher based on, you know, synergies that they might. But there are definitely rules on what an ESOP can pay for a company. But, you know, Tracy and I did the valuation. We were comfortable with that number. Then what happened from there is the, um, the company went to the bank and took out a loan for that amount of money. And what happens is the company then does an internal loan to the, sets up a, an ESOP trust inside, sets up the plan, loans the money to the trust, and the trust buys the shares. And they are held in what's called a suspense account as the loan is paid off. So they're not distributed to employees until the loan is paid off. Let's say you had a 10-year loan um, you know, one-tenth of the shares would be released into employee accounts every year and for 10 years till they were all distributed. Um, so there's a bit of time. There is vesting. Um, it's at 20% a year. So an employee starts collecting. You have to be with the company roughly a year. You have to have a 1,000 hours worth of work, and, and there's certain regulations. Um, but once you meet that, then you start collecting shares every year. And then evaluation is done every year. So then whatever the value of those shares are times however many you have is yours. Um, and and you can, t- you know, and it's your money for when you leave the company, whether you leave voluntarily or are terminated. Certainly when you retire, obviously in case of disability or, or death to your family. Um, so it's, it's the, comp- the people do not, nobody pays for the shares of the company. It, it's, that is how it's distributed. The fact that it is, it's, a, it's technically a retirement plan, and it is overseen by ERISA, the Employment Insurance Security Act, I'm not saying that right, as well as the Department of Labor. So while it is a, a great way for an owner to transition, I will say that it is, it is complex. It is subject to government oversight, especially because you're not paying taxes on them. The company's not paying taxes because it's giving it to the trust. Now, when the employee does leave and take their distributions, the employee is taxed on it just as you, you know, would be on anything. But that's a much, you know, later case. So it, it's a bit of a complex animal. Um, but the more you, the more time you spend around it, the more people you talk to, the more you hear about it. Um, it, it, it makes sense. Now, are you familiar? So, so we had uh, on a previous episode of the podcast, we had Kate Washington from Own Rochester, mm-hmm. which is a, a worker-owned cooperative trying to get that started in Rochester. Uh, do you do, do you know the kind of is is there a, a big difference between the the ESOP model and, and cooperatives, or or are there even other ownership structures um, that are maybe non traditional that that uh, that you know of that that are possibilities? I think the two that are are most 
along these lines are the ESOPs, and I am very familiar. Matter of fact, I had uh, I met with the own Rochester committee probably a couple months ago. I was invited in to talk about ESOPs and the Butler Till story. And I think it's wonderful what they're doing. There, there are some significant differences. A co-op generally can be started more from the ground up, um, whereas an ESOP, because of it's it's a kind of a mechanism for transitioning ownership, and usually there is financing that needs to be involved unless the selling shareholder wishes to hold paper or whatever, um, that usually the company has to have been around a while, have a certain level of value. And um, and is very eligible for for financing from a bank in order to do that, unless there's some type of internal way to do it. So it's certainly not for a startup. Um, best companies for ESOPs. I mean, in general, given the cost of establishing an ESOP, um, just the legal and 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 all of that, uh, you know, the company should probably have a a value of of at least maybe a million two million dollars to start with. And probably should have a, about 20 or so employees, mainly because there's certain rules around concentration of, you know, I, I can't even go in there. I need a lawyer for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I think in that way it differs. An ESOP isn't something that a three-person company is just going to be able to to do. I mean, if, that, if you're a three-person company, then each of you own a third of the company and, and that's it. Something like this is something a little bit larger, a little bit more established, and has some financial um, success behind it. Okay. So, so it could even be just the, the stage that the company's at could Absolutely. be the way that they decide how to, how to move forward. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's certainly um, something that, that Own Rochester couldn't foster. I think there are probably a lot of great companies in the city. Um, I'm a baby boomer, and you've probably heard the term silver tsunami, which all of us baby boomers that are reaching retirement age and, and are looking to exit our business in a way that, that makes sense for us, but also makes sense for our employees. And I'm sure there are many sound companies that haven't don't know about ESOPs and could do this and, and create an ESOP under the own Rochester umbrella. Yeah, so we were talking about uh, about your culture when we when we got started and, and getting into this ESOP, uh, you know, ownership structure. I'm curious how you've seen that change. You know, I, I think that when when it would seem that when employees become owners, they have a different level of uh, of, of engagement, maybe. <laughs> uh, but but what what kinds of changes have you seen uh, to the culture at Butler Till since becoming an ESOP? I think we always had a very you know, committed, dedicated, hardworking group of people. But things change when you have a stake in the outcome. And it's so funny. Our, our chief strategy officer, Peter Infante, who you may have met, he has, he has a way of ex- explaining the ESOP where he says, the, what we're paid for what we come in every day and do our job, to actually physically do our job, those are our wages. That's what we're paid to, to do. The ESOP is a way to help you benefit from the wealth that you are helping to create. So it, it's kind of like that second element of it that I think that's that's kind of a great way to explain it. I there's no question we always had a super a super company. Obviously I'm biased, but we've always had a super company. But I do believe that once especially once we became 100%. It wasn't as pronounced when we became 50%, but when we became 100% and people really realized that we own this. 
And one of the phrases that we use is we own this, all of this, which means not just the good times, not just, you know, the, the, you know, when the value goes up and we all get more money in our account, but we own the bad times. We own the losses. We own, we own the need to manage our expenses and make sure that we're being as productive as we can and to be as efficient as we can. Because every new employee you hire and every new expense that you add to the bottom line is money that can't go to the profit level, which is going to go into your ESOP. So absolutely, I think people take much more of a sense of ownership, sometimes in a very funny way. I remember um, early on, after being 100%, we had thrown some big kind of we were named like one of the best workplaces in Rochester. And so that morning we had balloons and we, um, you know, greeted everybody at the front door with, with donuts and a mug and, you know, just to kind of thank everybody for, for making us such a a great place to work. And later we had a couple of people say, well, how much did those balloons cost? Did we really need those balloons? (laughs) And, you know, it's kind of funny, but it, it tells you how people start to think, which is great. Because you want them to think like owners, and and they do. Wow, I, I, that's a great that's a great story. I, know. I can see that. I can see how that starts to starts to infuse every aspect mm-hmm. of thinking about it a little differently. So that actually brings up a kind of a, a question that that now is is coming to my mind in terms of once that happens, and and maybe it's not the oh there used to be there used to be two owners, you know, uh, you know. The, the the butler and the till. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so then once there's all of these owners, what is what does governance look like for for making some of those decisions? You know, mm-hmm. w- would there be any opportunity for that employee to say, hey, we d- we shouldn't do those balloons? Or like like how do you <laughs> how do you decide when there's so many different so many different constituencies that need yeah. to be uh, uh, you know on board? Yeah, and that is a great question, and that is and what I've found in my experience, not only at Butler Till, but in working with the ESOP Association and, and with ESOPs all over the country, is that it varies widely. I mean, there are ESOPs that operate. Um, you know, very much in a traditional traditional sense, very hierarchical in, in their authority. And, and the employees obviously have this as a retirement benefit, but it really doesn't change a lot about how they run the company. Everything to where, you know, they sit around and talk about, you know, what kind of paper toweling we should have in the kitchen, you know. So there is a wide spectrum of that element of, of governance of, of ESOPs. The only thing that's really required by law uh, when you're an ESOP is that the company cannot be sold or dissolved or, or main assets sold without voting of all shareholders. So I love that benefit because I think we all know people who have their companies sold and they're out of a job and, and they had no. So it gives a certain level of control of destiny to ESOP employee owners that, that other people don't. Sure. Um, but from a governance point of view, especially when we became 100%, we, we established a board of directors, which we never had when it was Tracy and I because, you know, we owned it. And if we screwed up, you know, it was our money that we, we were losing. Um, now it's everybody's money. Um, so we established a board. Uh, we brought in outside directors, you know, to really make it a, a true board and not just a, another layer of a management team. Um, and and really, that that board is responsible for overseeing the management of of the, the CEO and the president and all of that. And that's their job is to to set their help with them set goals and, and performance measurements and compensation and all of those things. 
Um, then within that, I think the involvement in decision-making, which is a big part of what they call a participatory management, which affects the um, benefits of an ESOP a great deal, that is very individual. Um, but we find we have a very open, we do we open book management. People know outside of individual salaries, everybody at Butler Till knows exactly how much money we make, where we make it from, where what our expenses are, where it goes. You know, this is all very clear, and it's expressed every quarter. People know where we are. Um, I think there is just a greater opportunity for knowledge sharing. We have town hall meetings. Um, I think they're once once a month. Is that they once a month? Um, every every month we have what's called BT Connect, which is our agency wide kind of. We all get together and talk about all the things that are going on. But then following that, we have what's called a town hall, which is more of a chance for people to come in and bring specific issues or concerns and talk about it in a very judgment free way and with with top management. And that seems to be working very well too. And a lot of positive changes have come out of that feedback. I mean, the whole idea of flexible hours, you know, we never had those. And that came forward. We said, well, we can make that work. And, you know, so different things that come out of that. Not everything can be adopted, but there's a great opportunity for listening and sharing. And when there are decisions that can be made at, at levels that really affect people at that level, and, and they're, they're good recommendations, let's do it. So I think that's kind of the way that it's governed. It's a little bit more formal on the corporate, on the board side. And it almost has to be, again, and I keep going back to this, but, you know, ERISA and the Department of Labor do monitor ESOPs very carefully. And, and their audits are not uncommon. So it's very important that we document major corporate decisions and actions that we take in case we ever have to defend. Um, but beyond that, it's it's really, I think, just much more of a participatory place for people. Yeah. So as a, as a leader, you know, I think that many leaders uh, enjoy that that opportunity to have that, that influence, right? And so um, I'm curious, as you were both transitioning to an ESOP, but also transitioning into less of a day-to-day role, was it was it difficult for you to uh, to let go of some of those things? You know, I, especially in a place where you created a culture that you're obviously very proud of, um, and and you know, the, being the steward of that culture as a leader, mm-hmm. um, was it was it difficult, or did the ESOP model make it easier, or or how how has that transition gone? And in some ways, it's still going. Yeah, I think it will always be there. Um... I think one of the things that really helped us is our successors. I mean, Tracy and I, in 2011, when we did the first transaction, we identified who the three people were that would be running the company when we left. At that point, we thought it would be five years later. It ended up being three years later. These were people that had, they hadn't been with us since the very beginning, but had been with us for a long time. They they understood, they valued the culture and, and the benefits of working in a, a place like Butler Till. And we felt very confident that they would want to continue that. So I think having your, making sure your management team is, you know, on the same page in terms of, of that. We, we've sent our people to executive training and running employee-owned companies. I mean, there's, there's, there's things that you can do to even help just from a textbook standpoint, help people understand some of the differences in running an employee-owned company and, and how to do it better. Um, we also express very much to all of our employees that that while we may have 
have built or or allowed this culture to exist, it's up to them now to keep it. I mean, they can destroy it tomorrow if they want to. And, and you know, God hopes they never will. Um, but it's up to them now. They're, they're the keepers of the flame. They're the ones that have to protect and preserve the culture. And when Tracy and I talk a lot about, you know, the transition of the company, we're very clear about that with employees, whether they're long time or whether they're new, that this is on you now. If you value this, you better do what you need to do to maintain it. Hmm. And then again, it's the ownership. It's, it's, it's on you. If the company fails tomorrow, yeah, you're going to lose your ESOP account. And it's, but you're here to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. So, so how do then uh, new employees, um, what is the, what is the onboarding or enculturation process look like? Cause I can imagine that for many, they don't know what an ESOP is or mm-hmm. what they're not only what they're, you know, responsibilities are, but what their rights are as a, mm-hmm. as an owner and, mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. So mm-hmm. how do, how do they get educated? And then also I'm curious if, if people have started to come to you because they want to be owners, like, like, has that mm-hmm. been a recruitment strategy that, that ESOP draws more, uh, more employees that want mm-hmm. to be a part of that? Mm-hmm. Well, to answer the onboarding question, um, we, we have very formal onboarding. We have a committee within Butler Till called the ESOP Communications Committee. And this is a group of employees. I think that's about 10 or 11. Um, and, and like any committee, you know, every year there are some vacancies and new people come in. And it represents individuals from all levels of the company and all departments of the company and all, all tenures, if you will. So it, it's a very good, broad representation. And their job is, to, one of their jobs on the committee is really to educate new employees as they come in about what the ESOP is. And we do it in stages because it, you know, somebody comes in, we have an HR, a fantastic HR team, and and they can talk through it a little bit. But about 30 days in, somebody from the ECC, we call it, will sit down with the employee and kind of walk them through ESOP 101. You know, this is kind of what it is. Um, you know, you're not going to be eligible for it for next year, but when you are, this is is what it's all about. And then maybe in six months in, we have like an ESOP 201 that goes into a little bit more detail. At that point, they've kind of got their sea legs a little bit better and have more questions, and we can kind of answer those for them. And then once they actually become uh, that, you know, become participants, are eligible to participate, then we have what's called an owner's manual, which our creative department did, which is so cool because it looks like a car owner's manual. But, you know, there's just sections on what does it mean and when will I get my money and, you know, how does this work and, and you know, what if this and what if that. So there's 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 classes um, and then there's written materials and collateral materials and, and just lots of opportunities for people to to ask questions about it. The owner's manual. Love it. It is. I mean, I wish I should have brought one with me because you would get the biggest charge out of it. It's it's great. Nice. So then the other the other piece that's a you know unique aspect of your company is is that you're also a B Corp. <laughs> so um, tell me a little bit about the timeline. Did that happen before or after the the ESOP process? I know uh, if I'm not mistaken, the the B Corp uh, mentality came in through uh, through Brand Cool when you when you uh, acquired or merged with mm-hmm, them. So mm-hmm. um, how does that all fit in with with your ESOP status? It was definitely came in after the ESOP status. We uh, we became a 100% ESOP in 2014. We acquired Brand Cool in 2015, and certainly Brand Cool was a, a very strong 
B Corp. They're not only just because of their culture, but because so much of their work was around the energy sector and sustainability. So it, it fit them like a glove in many, many ways. So when, when we acquired them, this was new to us, but we were very intrigued by it. And I think even we already were checking in a lot of the boxes for B Corp. Um, we, you know, the way, the way we cared for our work force and our people, um, how we gave back to the community. There were certainly things that in the B Corp world, we were already doing a pretty good job of, um, you know, the, the planet's kind of the third element of that. And, and, and certainly while we've always tried to be good environmental people, it probably wasn't as great a focus as it is now. Um, but we decided in 16 that, you know, we, Butler Till wants to be a B Corp. So we went through the process and became one. And I think um, how it changed us is, I think we already had such an employee-centric culture that, you know, that didn't really change significantly because it was already at a very high level. We already had, for years, had a charity committee and, and been very involved in doing things for our community. But I think that definitely grew. Um, in 2017, we did two mission trips where we sent employees to um one group to Oregon and one to Louisiana to work with Habitat for Humanity. Uh, earlier this year in 2018, we, we sent two employees down to Nicaragua to help build a school. So um, things of those nature just, I think, grew in, in greater importance to us when we became a B Corp. We have three days every year that employee is paid to go and do whatever community work that they wish to do. Um, our committee is always running internal fundraisers and, and things to raise money for for local usually local charities that have a great deal of personal meaning to employees so there's just there's an, an enormous amount of that that goes on and I think as far as the environmental aspect goes in the planet we definitely got smarter and and find ways and, and find different things that we can do to be more efficient in our use of resources and leave a smaller carbon footprint to the degree that we can. So that's really interesting in terms of two really strong cultures uh, merging. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've worked with uh, a lot of companies on that kind of merger process because there's a, an element of doing your financial due diligence, but then how can you also do some cultural due diligence to see if, if that is a fit? Mm-hmm. Uh, because Harvard says that something like 80% of mergers and acquisitions fail to meet all the synergies that they're expecting, right? So I think a lot of times that's friction between the, the cultures as they try to integrate. So was there anything specific that, that you all did to do that cultural due diligence? Or how did you know that it was going to be a, a good fit uh, culture-wise when you, when you went through that, that merger? With Brand Cool? Yes. Um, it, that is the biggest challenge of mergers and acquisitions and and. Certainly in, in my business experience and people I know, um, the, acquiring another company can not, doesn't always work out. Uh, I think with Brandcool, uh, you know, we knew Sue Cohan, the president, lovely, lovely woman. Um, she and I knew each other through um, WPO, Women's President's Organization, through WeBank, um, the, the national association that, that certifies women business enterprises because Brandcool was also... Oh, WBE, as were we. So, I mean, we kind of knew each other for a, a long time. We knew the culture of the company. We knew we knew a lot about them, and they knew a lot about us. And I think for us it was just kind of a, a very easy, natural fit because there was already so many 
um, synergies. And it was, a, you know, a smooth transition, not not flawless. There is no flawlessness <laughs> when it comes to that. But, you know, overall, but I will say that was relatively small um, in terms of, of the number of people that we acquired. It was local, which made it a lot easier. Uh, part of our growth strategy at Butler Till is continued acquisitions. and But we are very aware as a board and as a management team that, uh, we got really lucky the first time around with finding a opportunity and a partner that was a, a hand-in-glove type of fit, and we have to be really careful moving forward. So mm-hmm. it's it's well, something we want to do, but we're also really very cognizant of the, the risks. Yeah, absolutely. So on a on a broader perspective, as we're uh, as we're starting to to wrap things up, I'm I'm curious. You know, it seems like you really embody this this conscious capitalism ethos and in the company that you created uh, certainly does as well. Uh, and so I think whether you talk about B Corps or, or ESOPs or just the best place to work or the culture in general, um, it seems like you, you really embody this, this idea that, that business should be a, a force for good in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you think it is that, that keeps more businesses from adopting that kind of perspective or, or maybe keeps more leaders from, from moving their companies in that direction? Because some of the things that I've seen certainly show that it can be a you know not only doing good for the world but also have a positive impact on the bottom line and, mm-hmm. and on the retention mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. But what do you think are some of the the barriers? You know that that's a great question, and and I don't, I'm not really sure. I I know I have a good answer for you. I I think that we live in a very competitive environment, uh, in. Uh, most if not all industries and certainly in the advertising and marketing industry. And I think um, it can be hard when you're worried about making payroll every week or paying your rent or, or being able to make sure your vendors are paid on a timely basis to, to be able to think about the other aspects of business success. Um, so I think that's probably what what is the hardest thing for an owner that that is always worried about? Oh my God, I have to pay my people. I have to. I, I need to give them health insurance. I mean, so and then it just goes back to the money, the money, the money, the money. Um, but I think, you know, I think there are ways to merge both. And and we became an ESOP and we became a B Corp a few years into our life. Um, actually, if we started in '98, and that was as was 2011, quite a few years into our life, so we had had the opportunity to build a lot of the the structure and and the financial foundation of our company, which gave us, I think, a little bit more freedom to to look in other areas of success. In the first few years, when we were struggling, you know, would would it have been as easy for us to do that? Maybe not. But once you kind of get to a point where you kind of have a solid business going, um, I think that's the time where you can kind of look back and say, okay, how can I, how can this be more than just an opportunity to, to make money for my employees and to help our clients achieve their goals? How can it be a bigger thing than that? So was that something that was a, an evolution for you over time as a leader uh, or were, were there any specific moments in your in your history or your story where you were really woken up to you know how you want to create more of a of a positive contribution in the world? Um, I'm just curious because I'm always trying to encourage more leaders to to move in that direction. So um, I'm curious how, your own story and what influenced you to move in that direction. 
You know, I think um, I think in in the early days, if you had asked me or you said, you know, gee, why don't you send a couple of people of your people to Nicaragua for you know and you know and, and pay their expenses and their time and all that, and I'd say, well, I can't because you know I I just can't. Um, but I think as as you're able to do those things, and you look around and you see. Um, see all the things that you can do. And I think it started small with us, I would say. I mean, we we established our charity committee, which is employee-led and employee-run. That again, like I said, just identify as, you know, local charities that we can do things for, that we can help. And and we started small and, and did those, and employees really took advantage of that. And then that grew into more opportunities and, and, and actual paid days off and then grew into mission trips. So I think starting small with it and just giving your employees and yourself an opportunity to to take that family that you have at work and, and go out in the community and do something good for somebody else, the more you do it, then it just becomes part of, of your work life. And especially, you know, you're you're a young guy. I mean, there's always the millennial talk and all of that. And today's worker, yes, they want a good job. Yes, they want to be paid well, but they want their job to have meaning. And and our our overarching purpose at Butler Till is that we create connections and we make a difference. And and from a business point of view, the connections are connecting our advertisers' message to the right audience, and so they sell products, and everybody's happy, right? But it's also connecting with each other. How can we support each other? Because that next guy is an owner, too, and that next guy is an owner, too. So how can we all, how can I help all of us have a better life for ourselves and our family? How can I help um, our community? Be better? How can I help um, our partners, our, our business partners, our vendors, you know, people that we buy products and goods from? How can we make a positive impact on them? So you start to think about all the different ways that you can, can make a difference, create connections and make a difference. And that resonates very, very strongly with people, I think, especially young people. And to answer your question, do people come to us because we're an ESOP? I think some do. I think it's still such an unknown quantity that a lot of times when pe- young people come to us and uh, we tell them that, it's just like they don't really know what that means. But then they go home and they talk to their parents and their parents say, oh, my God, you know, you're going to have, you know, you're going to have ownership of this company. You know, this is very unusual. Um, so that helps. But I will say the B Corp, I think, um, and, and the the awareness of B Corp that has risen over the last few years is definitely a draw for younger employees. So the two are a good one, one-two punch. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. I it definitely uh, reinforce each other for yeah. sure. Yeah. So I guess just as you're looking forward to the the next the next few years of, of Butler Till, um, what 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 do you think the future holds? Are there are there other things that you think you're you're working on? Maybe from the the B Corp assessment or from other feedback that you've had from your employees on things that you want to work on or get better on, or maybe it's your your offerings that you see evolving mm-hmm. in the future. Mm-hmm. What, what's the future hold for Butler Hill? Well, I think from a business point of view, uh, we have made a major investment in our whole data and analytics group, and I mean that's just becoming more and more a part of of media. And marketing is, you know, how do you measure? How do you optimize? How do you do predictive modeling? How do you justify, you know, every expense that you do and, and be able to measure ROI? 
that's going to continue. And, and that's only going to get bigger and bolder. Um, traditional media is still a player, but digital media is enormous. Um, and it's only growing. And the technology is making digital media even uh, different to to purchase. I mean, programmatic is big now, or so much of it is automated. So it's, it's much different from back in the day when we sat there with a Nielsen book and tried to decide whether to buy a spot in the Cosby show or Cheers. You know, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a whole nother world now. Um, so I think that, uh, I think that we will continue as, as we always have to just kind of stay at the forefront of that and make sure that we're bringing our clients, you know, the, the latest and the greatest, even if it doesn't fit for them, that they know about it and they understand it because um, there may be a time that they do need it. Um, you know, for myself personally, I mean, I, I have a, a grandson in Europe and I have a husband who's fully retired and I've got a few more years in me to, you know, kind of kick around and, and work with Butler Till and and be this um, advocate for employee ownership nationally as much as I can. Um, but then I'll probably decide to maybe, you know, fully retire too. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, it does sound like you've got a lot of passion for it and, and it's great to continue to share the story of mm-hmm. Butler Till for, uh, for future folks that might be interested in that, in that ESOP model and, and, and maybe even the B Corp as well. So mm-hmm. if folks are listening and they're kind of resonating with what you're talking about, uh, what are some of the best ways to get started learning more about ESOPs, about B Corps, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe integrating some of that into their own business or at least considering it? Well, absolutely. From an ESOP perspective, uh, there is, there are not only is ESOP Association National, there are chapters across the country. So there is a New York, New Jersey chapter of the ESOP Association that holds meetings that are in this geographic area. So I would send anybody to the ESOP Association website to look at at opportunities to attend conferences and meetings and talk to other people that are already ESOPs or are thinking of becoming ESOPs and also the service providers that help with that transition. Um, that is very helpful. And we did a lot of that in the beginning. There's also other organizations. Um, NCEO is the National Center for Employee Ownership. They have a great website, huge amount of educational information, lots of great videos. Um, so I think kind of doing that and then reaching out and talking to people, ESOP companies, you know, and, and people like myself and also service providers. We like in Rochester. We're very fortunate because we have some very skilled ESOP experts here. Um, ESOP Plus is a law firm. Uh, Rob Brown, who used to be with Boylan Brown Code, um, branched off years ago and established ESOP Plus, and their full focus is ESOPs. And he's right here in Rochester, so he is a he is a nationally renowned expert on ESOPs. And I'll tell you, Rob will sit down with anybody any day of the week and talk about ESOPs and talk about whether their company is a, a good candidate for it or not. Uh, Empire Valuation is based here. They're very strong in the ESOP world as well. Principal um, is is just down in Buffalo, and they do a lot of ESOP work. And so we have a lot of resources right here that will will just talk to people. And once, and you know, there's books and there's all that kind of great stuff. And you start to learn and think. And if it sounds right for you, then then go for it. 
Wonderful. Well, as I said uh, at the beginning of the show, this could easily be two or three more episodes. So maybe Sue will have to have you in again in the future. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming in. Truly appreciate yeah. uh, your, your time, but even more so everything that you've been doing over the years to really be at the forefront of, of the evolution of business. Great. Thank you very much, Andrew. I appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by Wicked Squid Studios, Rochester, New York's premier podcast development team. The Wicked Squid family brings ideas to life through the art of audio production. From custom jingles and creative services to studio memberships and educational curriculum, their outfit strives to empower all members of society to build a more equal and colorful world. Learn more about their operation at wickedsquidstudios.com.